0: How many of you uh, have heard the name Frank Abagnale Jr.? Anybody know that name, Frank Abagnale? Brian, we got we got one. All right, prize goes to you. Frank Abagnale Jr. Can you, you can you tell us a short thing how you know him? I just know the name. You just know the name. Okay. Because I know it's a, somebody who's a celebrity, but that's their first that's their actual name. Oh, is that correct? That wasn't. That's not my understanding. Maybe it is, but I think he goes by his real name. Well, okay, we got nobody then. (laughs) Brian, scratch that off. (laughs) Brian doesn't know it. So uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. became a con man early in his life, and kind of one of his main things was passing bad checks. And he um, fabricated fake payroll checks, um, mostly from airlines. And so he would get his name on there. He like made this check, would go cash it, and then he'd get. That money. He impersonated airline pilots several times in his life. And in 1978, there was a movie made about. There's a movie, there's yeah. a yeah. Woo. Brian's Catch-Can. Yeah. So, yeah. huh? Catch, catch me if you can. can. Wow. Okay. There we go. Yes. Catch me if you can. So before all that, in 1975, he approached a bank and said, "Hey, I'll uh, I'll show you how to catch people defrauding banks." In 1976, he created a consulting uh, kind of firm. Um, to, allow, to advise companies on fraud issues, and then a book called "Catch Me If You Can" was published to tell his life story. And since its publication, many of the stories have been shown to be greatly exaggerated or completely made up. And so, some of the most uh, crazy things that he says he's done, actually, people have come out and been like, "Actually, you were in prison during this time that you're saying you did this," or "There's no evidence of you being in you know this place at this time." Um, but this hasn't stopped people from telling his story as. Uh, Brian and Heather said, in 2002, the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, was released. And in the book, Catch Me If You Can, Abagnale claimed that the FBI agent who was hunting him, um, they actually became friends, and then that (laughs) agent invited him uh, to work for um, the FBI. And in this story, it's showing um, Abagnale is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and the FBI agent is played by Tom Hanks hunting him. There's also been a TV show that was inspired by his life which was called uh, White Collar. Uh, Katie and I watched almost all of it and then they took it off Netflix. We missed like three episodes. So if you tell me where I can watch the last three, uh, that'd be helpful. But in the show, Neil Caffrey uh, was kind of playing the Frank Abagnale character. He's like this master con artist and he can um, create uh, like paintings um, that like re- replicate paintings of famous painters and he can do, make fake checks and all this stuff. But he gets caught by FBI agent Peter Burke and puts him in prison, but then eventually Peter Burke comes to him and says, hey, I, we have this job and I think you can help us catch him. And then that creates this uh, relationship where he's kind of like this consultant with the FBI and Peter Burke is looking over him and they have this complicated relationship. And what I find interesting about this story, regardless of how much is real or how much is made up, is how interested we are in it is that there's this guy who made you know spent a bunch of his life committing crimes and yet there's been a, a book written about it he's t- appeared on television shows he's been on the tonight show three times there's a Wikipedia page about him he's been asked to speak at conferences I saw him give a talk at Google um, in the last I don't know ten years I don't remember what it was um, and he there has been this movie made about him which he might I, I would feel like he probably has to feel pretty good about himself because uh, they asked Leonardo DiCaprio to play him, so it's like, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is like hot stuff, or was hot stuff, um, back in the day. Uh, but then a TV show that ran for six seasons was inspired by his life. And we're fascinated with this guy who became famous for committing crimes. He's a criminal. He broke the law. and this But this story isn't unique because there's a lot of movies and TV shows that actually are about this. So, for example... The Italian job, Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, Ocean's Thirteen, Now You See Me, Now You Don't. Just to name a few, we're fascinated with watching people commit crimes. And today as we're doing this message, You're Called and Capable, continuing our our series, um, we're going to see how this fits into relationships, how this idea of our fascination of people doing crimes fits in, helps us understand how to communicate the message, You're Called and Capable. And so the past two weeks have been kind of the core of this uh, series. And so we looked at You're Safe With Me, which is having this message of grace that we're for the person, not against them. You're loved no matter what. Um, We communicate that through affection uh, and empathy, even in the middle of them doing something that makes them hard to love. And then today is You're Called Incapable. And what we see from these movies and shows about committing crimes is that it takes talent to pull off a crime. It takes talent to be a criminal, well, most criminals, I guess. It, it takes talent to break the law and not get caught. And what you see in many movies, like The Italian Job or Ocean's Eleven, is there's usually this scene where it's like, okay, here's what we're trying to do, and then it's like, okay, we gotta pull together all these people with these various skill sets that are make them valuable to this team so we can pull off uh, this, this heist or this job and in Ocean's Eleven, uh, Danny Ocean puts together a team of 11 people to rob three casinos. And each one brings this valuable skill to the team, whether it's planning or people skills or explosives or acrobatics or technology, it's bringing these people together to commit this crime. And so it takes talent to pull off a good crime. And this is an adaptation from a statement that um, Connected Families that created these four messages. Uh, they say, uh, it takes talent to misbehave. And they explain that when a child is misbehaving, is, you can apply this to anybody, but they're talking about in the midst of a child trying to get what they want, they access their strengths, not their weaknesses. They rely upon what they're good at in order to get what they want. Creativity, reading people, persuasion, persistence, perseverance, determination, assertiveness, sense of justice. You know, That's not fair, it's a sense of justice. Bargaining, deal-making, and so forth and oftentimes, Katie and I will remark you know, Hunton is not a people pleaser which well, okay this is a good leadership quality of like you know he can be a good leader because it's like I'm not just going to go with what everyone else says I'm going to go after this and so we try to remind ourselves of that uh, and what we also see from these stories like the one inspired by Frank Abagnale's life with the TV series White Collar is that those same strengths gifts talents and skills that are used to commit a crime can also be used for good to do Good things, and if you look at the show White Collar, Neil Caffrey, you could look and just see a criminal. But then eventually, Peter Burke, this FBI agent, sees this is someone who can actually be an asset. They have unique skills and talents and gifts that they can use and apply it in a different way. They were just using it for the wrong purposes. As we think about your called and capable, um, this will come into play. Um, for us of what kind of skills and talents or gifts does this person have that are being used in the wrong way. And to be honest, of the four messages of this framework, this has been the hardest one for me personally to apply to parenting or to other things. So this was actually really helpful for me to have to prepare this message. um, And I'll get more into why it's difficult for me later on. But to say someone's called incapable, let's kind of define these terms. To say someone's called incapable means that God has called them to do something with their life. They have a calling, and God has made them capable of fulfilling that calling. They have a calling on their life, and God has made us capable of fulfilling that calling. And so if we go back to our second message, we said uh, that you are loved, you're made to be loved by God, to love God, and to love like God. And you could say that that's our calling. Uh, 1 John four nineteen 19-21 says, uh, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that sums up our calling in a way. Jesus said the two greatest commandments were love God and love others as yourself. And we only love God um, when he has first loved us. It says we, we love because he first loved us. And so God loves us. We respond with love to Him, and we pour out that same love to other people. And some have said that our primary way of showing our love for God is by loving um, other people, other people who are made in His image. So that's our calling, but our capability comes from being made in God's image and likeness. And our calling is to love God by loving others, uh, which means we're supposed to bless others, do good for others, build others up, care for them, and and, uh, add value to their life. And God has also made us capable of fulfilling this calling. And how do we know that he's made us capable of fulfilling that calling? Uh, Well, we can look at what Heather read, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, tell us that uh, we have been created in the image and likeness of God. God said, let us make human beings in uh, our image and likeness. And so uh, we're told that um, this image and likeness, well, then God... Tells them, okay, go and be fruitful and multiply. And so What does it mean to be made in someone's image and likeness? Is that um, It's almost like a mirror reflection. We're supposed to reflect what God is like. And he says, I want to fill the world. I want you to go forth and multiply. That this whole world will be filled with people reflecting my image and likeness and how they treat each other, and how they treat the creation, and it's all coming from their relationship with God. And so what does this tell us about our calling and capability? We saw in a previous message that God is love. And so essential to what it means to be God is to be a being that is giving and receiving love. God is love. Love is part of the essence of who God is, this love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so then what it means to be made in the image and likeness of this God who is love is that we are capable of giving and receiving love. Human beings are loving. We are created to connect. And we have the capability to connect with other people and with God. We are created for relationships. And perhaps you've heard about um, probably I mean, maybe one of the most famous Christian books of all time, is the Five Love Languages. Everyone has heard of that book, Five Love Languages. Um, it's kind of a it's, all, it's still like one of the top books on Amazon. It's crazy how popular that book is. Um, but Gary Chapman, he's come up with these Five Love Languages, <clears throat> and the premise that he has. Is that different people with different personalities give and receive love differently. And so the five love languages he's identified are acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, words of affirmation, and physical touch. And you know, you're not really going to find that list in the Bible, but if we just for a moment say, okay, let's, you know, Gary Chapman is on to something because it's working for a lot of people, let's just say those are our ways of Giving and receiving love, we're capable of doing those things, of giving those things and receiving those things. But the question is, okay, if that's true, we talked about in our first message, what's happened? Why are we so bad at giving and receiving love? If we're created with this uh, capability to connect, what's gone wrong with it? He's called us to love others. Why are we have such a hard time with it? And the problem starts in Genesis 3, when Satan convinced Adam and Eve, and if you, you could summarize it as, you know, God really doesn't love you. You, know, you need to kind of take matters into your own hands. Don't trust God with your life. He doesn't really love you. You need to take matters into your own hands. You need to practice a little self-love. Just do this, and then you can get what you want. Take from, eat from the streets, and, to eat from, and then you'll have what you're really wanting. And they did this, and that self-focused love killed their relationship with God and their relationship with each other, their love for God and their love for each other, and so we are called to love. We're capable of loving. The problem is that our capability to love other people has now been misdirected and redirected towards ourselves. Instead of loving God, loving others, now we just we tend to love ourselves. I'm going to do what's good for me instead of I'm going to do what's good for other people. And that's it's become misdirected. It's not that, so this image and likeness of God that God made us with this capability to reflect what he's like, to show his love to other people. It's not that that has been destroyed, but it's been corrupted and tainted. And it's not that the image of God is missing in us, but it's been misdirected, that our capabilities are misdirected. And this is very important to the message you're calling capable, because every single person you see, and ever known, or will ever know, uh, is made in the image and likeness Of God, No matter how far they have gone from what that's supposed to mean, they are still made in the image and likeness of God. And we see this truth expressed in Psalm 139. This psalm was written by Israel's King David, and you can see how he feels very known by God, that God is the one who made me. He talks about how God is even there when he was being formed in his mother's womb, that God was knitting together his frame while he was inside his mother. David knows God is one who is very involved with his creation, who is personally involved in his life. And the key verse I want to look at is verse 14. David writes, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And so every single person that you've ever known, every single person that you know now, or that you will ever know, can say that about themselves. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And David even seems to be like, He's kind of, you know, we might say like, wow, God, look at this mountain. That's amazing. you know Great are your works. And David's saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Great are your works. Wonderful are your works. And that's, we may feel like, whoa, that's getting a little, well, getting a little prideful, David. You know, you're kind of looking at yourself and thinking, I'm all that. But it, where the praise is directed is to God, not to himself. He's like, this comes from God. I am made. I didn't make myself. God made me this way. And the CSB translation says, I have been remarkably and wondrously made. When we look at a mountain or the fall leaves or a bright sunset, we have this sense of of kind of awe and wonder. Wow, that's awesome. Wow, that's amazing. And that's the reaction David is having when he's looking at himself, saying, Wow, I am awesomely and wonderfully made. And every single person created in the image of God can say this about themselves, no matter who they are. And so let's think a little radically about this, apply this radically. Every murderer, every dictator, every pedophile, every human trafficker can say this about themselves. Adolf Hitler can say this about could say this about himself. the nine eleven terrorists could say this about themselves. Larry Nasser, the um, trainer with the, or the medical doctor with the u s gymnastics could say this about himself and what 's also true is that the victims of those people who have been used and abused by those people, can also say this about themselves because it can feel like I've been ruined. I've been, you know, someone ruined me. But it's no matter what's been done to us that we can still say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm in the image of God. No one can take that away. Every human being is made in God's image and likeness. So let's get even more personal. You can say this about yourself. I mean, imagine... You know, There's a mirror in front of you right now. And can you say, with your eyes wide open, looking at that mirror, that picture of yourself, can you say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are God's words. Can you look in the mirror and say that about yourself? It might seem weird, like, I don't, you know, I don't really do that. And I would just challenge you when you get home today or tomorrow morning after you take your shower or whatever, try to just look at in the mirror and say that to yourself. And it will tell you a lot about what you think about yourself of whether you're able to do that or not, is saying, "I am fearfully and wonderfully made." One scholar said that this sentence could be legitimately translated as, "I praise thee for I am awesomely wonderful. Are you able to do that? Do you believe that about yourself? We tend to, um, as Christians or non christians too, we kind of think like, "Well, I'm kind of garbage. I'm a sinner. Like I'm just you know a piece of trash. And yet we, that is true. And at the same time, David I mean David did some terrible things. He committed adultery, he murdered somebody. I mean, he did some crazy stuff. And he can still say, I don't know if this psalm was written before or after those things, but either way, he can still look and say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that doesn't go away. And this is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise for God's goodness. And one of the places David looks to see God's goodness is himself. And perhaps for you, that's even more radical than an evil person being able to say, okay, yeah, Hitler, that makes sense. He's made in God's image still. But can you look in the mirror and say that about yourself? And here begins the perspective shift that we need to make. We need to begin uh, to see ourselves and other human beings as fearfully and wonderfully made, as just awesome, one, awesomely wonderful creations of God that starts with us But as I said, while it's true that we're made in the image of likeness of God, we have done a very poor job reflecting what God is like with those capabilities he gave us to love other people. David uh, did a poor job at this. He did terrible things to hurt people. And he had times when he was only loving himself. The only person he was using those capabilities for was to love himself. And yet, Psalm 139.14 is still true of him. And the reality is that every human being has these capabilities and yet we have, we've misdirected them to loving ourselves which is not what they're designed to do. We have this built-in functionality and feature that isn't going to ever go away but needs to be kind of reprogrammed. And this is what sin does to us. It, it, it twists us in on ourselves and there's an um, author, used to be a pastor and now he's an author and kind of helps other pastors. Paul Tripp calls Um, 2 Corinthians 5.15, a diagnostic verse, because it diagnoses our condition. And it says this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15, And Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this tells us the diagnosis of the human condition is that without Christ we live for ourselves. We're living for ourselves. And that means our love is directed toward ourselves. We're supposed to direct it towards other people. And Paul Tripp uh, explains that sin is essentially antisocial. He says that because we live for ourselves, we prioritize loving ourselves, and we see people either as a vehicle or an obstacle toward that goal. And so because we're trying to love ourselves, we see another person, you're either a vehicle to help me love myself, to help... Bless me, make me feel better, um, to help you know, continue the agenda of me getting the things I want in life. Or you're an obstacle, and I'm just going to kind of be mad at you or get you out of the way or avoid you. So we tend to see people either as vehicles or obstacles toward uh, our project of living and loving ourselves. And this is what uh, turning from God has done to us. This is what sin does to us. It twists us in on ourselves, so we're bent in to look at only ourselves. Our our love is misdirected. We use our God-imaging capabilities for the wrong purpose. and So we need a a recalibration. We need to be um, straightened out so that we are using it in the right way. And this is exactly what salvation is all about. As Second Corinthians 5.15 says, Jesus died so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave his life for us. Jesus died to unbend our love from ourselves to so now be, you know, if you picture, I don't know, if you picture like a, um, like a, uh, not called a pot, but a watering, what's a water, watering canister for like flowers, I that what it's called, a watering canister, I don't know. But you're, on the one end, you're, in the top, you're receiving God's love. And so it's like, instead of being bent in trying to try and get all this love for ourselves, and to only love ourselves, it's like, in the top, we're receiving God's love. But then on the spout, we're pouring that love out to other people. And so it's getting that not turned in on itself to try and get everything from um, just us. And I'm not much of a car guy, which... Perhaps you can tell by the cars we drive, you know, Prius, not super exciting, but good gas mileage, very exciting on that end. But I Googled what what would be the best car to restore? Like is there kind of like a list of the top ten cars? And one of them is the nineteen sixty-four to sixty-six Ford Mustang. And it's described as a classic that set the standard for American muscle car design in the nineteen sixties golden age. So Ford Mustang. Uh, 1964 to 1966. And so let's imagine you go to a junkyard, you're walking through, and you're like, hey, look, a 1964 Ford Mustang. How you know There There it is. You, it would be in bad shape. It could be rusted. The window's broken. It might not even run anymore. The seats could be all chewed up by squirrels and whatever else. And so it's in disrepair, and it needs to be restored. But it's still a 1964 Ford Mustang. And so for us as humans, every human being made in the image of God, uh, is still made in the image of God, no matter what condition they're in. And Psalm 139 verse 14 is still true of them. They're awesome and wonderfully made. And what's also true is that they're in disrepair. We're all in disrepair and need restoration. Our capabilities aren't functioning correctly. To restore a 1964 Ford Mustang, you'd want to go to the, you know, the dealer, or you know, people that create those parts and put those parts into it. Go to the original maker in order to restore it to its original design. And God is our original maker, who's restoring us um, even beyond the original design, not, okay, let's be back like Adam was in the garden. Actually, now our new design we're being restored to is Jesus, that we're going to be looking like him. Adam failed in all the ways that Jesus succeeded, and so he's the new place we're being taken. And that's what Ephesians 2, 1-10 explains. We're in bad shape. We're in disrepair. We're broken down. We've just completely abandoned our purpose but God came into our lives because of his great love for us and we were dead and broken down and he made us alive with Christ and he has a seed with Christ raised up in the heavenly realms and we're not only saved from something it says but for something. We have a calling, a new purpose And the last verse, Ephesians 2.10 says this we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. We are God's workmanship. and He recreates us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is now the blueprint for our restoration to what God wants us to be. And Romans 8, 20, 8 through 29 says that God is working all things together <coughs> for our good. And then you get to, okay, what, what is the good that he's working all things together for? And the next verse says, to be conformed to the image of Christ, that everything happening in your life right now is working towards the good of you becoming more like Jesus. That's what that verse is talking about. Not, God, this doesn't feel very good. I want more money. How is this getting me more money? That's not the good it's talking about. How do we define it? But it's making us like Jesus. God has planned stuff for your life. He's prepared things for you to do. He has a calling on your life. And he's made you capable of fulfilling that calling. And God unbends our capabilities from pointing at ourselves to now point them out to others, to his purposes in the world. Instead of loving ourselves, we now receive love from him and give love to others. You, each of us, is the first person who needs to hear the message. You are called and capable. God has a purpose for your life. And he's made you able to accomplish it. So again, what do you think about yourself? What do you think that God thinks when... He looks at you. When God looks at you, do you think God sees his wonderful workmanship? Or do you think God says, You're such a screw up. There's nothing good about you. You just get it wrong all the time. Why can't you just do what you're supposed to do? We need to be able to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, I am awesomely and wonderfully made by God for a purpose. Throughout this series, I've asked you to have someone in mind with whom you want to have more connection. Last week, I asked you to consider what uh, does this person do that makes them difficult to love? And so consider that. Who is someone with whom you want to have more connection? You can write it down or just have it in mind. What do they do that makes them difficult to love? Just take a moment. Who do you want more connection with? What do they do that makes them difficult to love? when they're doing those things that make them difficult to love, we tend to be in enemy mode. And the simple explanation of enemy mode is that we're focused on the problem or the pain that they're causing rather than them. We've made the problem or pain bigger than the relationship. And so instead of focusing on the person and keeping the relationship bigger than the problem or pain, we're focused on what's this problem they're causing, what's this pain they've caused in my life. And if you want to stay relational and to get out of enemy mode, well, let's go through our four messages. You first have to communicate, "You're safe with me by being for them and not against them. That's I me, mean, not the definition of being out of enemy mode, that I'm no longer against you, I'm for you, whatever it is. And then you need to show them love no matter what, through empathy and affection, through the hardest things to do when somebody's being difficult to love is to empathize with how they're feeling, like they just yelled at you and think about them saying like. It must, you must be having a really hard day, or I must have done something really hurtful for you to yell at me like that. That's the opposite of what we want to do, or to say, can I just give you a hug, or to say, like, I-, I love you, I want to work through this. It's like really hard for us to do those two things when somebody is being difficult to love. And then we need to see their actions with a different lens. And So imagine you're this FBI agent in white collar, Peter Burke, and you're looking uh, at Neil Caffrey, You've perhaps spent years chasing this guy for the crimes he's committed. And then you finally catch him and put him in prison to say about the sentence for his crimes. He's a criminal who's done bad things and he deserves the punishment. He's responsible for his actions. He needs to do something about that. He needs to pay for that. But then you can begin looking at him in a different way and you realize, hey... This guy has a lot of skills. It took a lot of talent to do the things that he did. There's a lot of strengths in this guy. What if those skills, talents, gifts, and strengths were used for a different purpose, for a good purpose, to bless people and help people? And this is what it looks like to communicate the message you're called and capable. You look beyond the actions of what the person is doing, and you look behind the, those actions and see what skills and talents and strengths and gifts are they using to do those behaviors, even if they're wrong behaviors. What you see is someone who's made in the image of God, who's called to love others, and is very capable of doing so if they would just redirect those skills and gifts and talents and strengths toward that purpose. And um, I had each of you grab that uh, sheet, the one that says, The Gifts Gone Awry. Connected Families. I'm not going to go through each of these, but this is just... Uh, an example list of they call it the gift gone awry they have a, this person has a gift, but it 's gone off course, and so I mean this is designed for parenting and kids, but these things we still do as adults, so it 's uh, you know lying or secure or irritable, and these show okay here 's what they 're doing, and here 's some of the gifts you might see behind that of how are they actually able to accomplish that so I want to share i 'm going to share two stories of how the one of the founders of Connected Families, how he's used this. I'm going to share one now and one a little later. Um, in the one story, uh, he's working with high-risk youth. and One teen girl uh, had, in their van, that just got like donated to their ministry or organization, she graffitied all over the back of one of the seats. And they discover this, and his initial impulse was, well, how dare they? How are they? We need to hold them accountable. They broke the law. They broke our stuff. What are we going to do about this? And it's true that they should be held accountable, and they will be. But then he looked at the art, and he noticed, actually, it's really good. I mean, it was dark and kind of demonic, <laughs> but he was like, well, the art skills shown here are actually really good. And so he thought the ta- her talent, whoever sits in this seat, is going to look at her talent on display in, you know, on the back of this other seat, and so uh, he goes to the student and he says, you're really good at art, aren't you? And I've seen an example of some of your art on the back of our seat in the van. And then he said, I know you're the one who did it. I want you to know that God gave you that gift for a reason and it wasn't this. So I'd love to work with you to make right what you've made wrong, to put those artistic talents to play to maybe earn some money to help make right what that poor choice made wrong. And then he took her shopping to pick out the paint color that was going to be painted on, some fabric paint on the back of it. And so he called out this gift to her. Look, you're really good at art, but you haven't used that in a good way. Here, you could use it better in this way, and now we're going to make this right, and I'm going to actually take you to the store, and we're going to go let you pick up the paint to put on the back of it to make it right. And I said at the beginning, this message, you're called and capable, has been one of the hardest for me to personally apply um, in parenting. I don't even think I've gone beyond parenting to start applying it in other situations It it's just like, I don't even know how to do this with my kid I'm seeing it all the time. And one of the big reasons why it's hard is because I tend to see what's missing, what's wrong, um, what needs to be improved, what what happened here that needs to be fixed. And maybe you're like me in that. But as Jim explained in that story that I just shared, is that we tend to see... Uh, but either things all good or all bad. And in this story, he, when he shared it, he talked about there's actually a mix of good and bad in this situation. Good art skills, bad application of them. And I tend to be all good or all bad, black, kind of black and white. And to communicate the message you're called and capable requires looking for and affirming what is good even when the person is doing something wrong or bad. It requires seeing good even in the middle of misbehavior, defiance, Uh, disrespect, lying, people having destructive behaviors, not doing a good job uh, at their job, being a poor neighbor. It's like, okay, can we see anything good behind that bad thing that's happening? Behind their sin and selfishness, are they using, what God-given capabilities are they using in that moment? So, as we think, okay, I'm hearing you say that, the we practically communicate this message to people. And so the one, one way is to check your beliefs. What do you believe about them? What do you believe about them? What you believe about them will determine your attitude toward them. If you believe they're all bad, that they're a problem, then you're going to be in enemy mode. You're going to be focused on the problem or the pain rather than the person. And we tend to have toxic beliefs about other people, or at least I do. I'm, maybe you guys aren't in that boat, but we tend, I tend to have toxic beliefs about people that can s- skew negative and toward like, you know, this, they can't do this right, or this is going to happen, they always do this. And those toxic beliefs form the way we're going to interact with that person. And we tend to have toxic beliefs about ourselves. And the place for us to start is, uh, what does God think about us? What does God... See when he looks at us. You're the first person who needs to hear God saying to you, you're awesomely awesomely and wonderfully made. You are my workmanship. And then you need to consider, is that what I also think about the person that I'm dealing with, this person in front of me? What does my attitude and actions say that I believe about them? What is is coming out of that? So another belief is that's kind of like uh, fundamentally, who are they, what are they, who am I, what am I, is the belief about our role in this person's life. Um, you know, parents have a certain role, and coworkers have a certain role, friends have a certain role in each other's life, Christians, to, other Christians have a certain role, and so one of our beliefs we need to shift is, who, what is my role in this person's life? Am I believing I'm kind of their judge, and I need to make sure that they know everything they did wrong, and get them to you know, have the proper punishment for that? Um, and that's going to be part of this framework. What does that look like? You know, it's not like, yeah, you know, all lollipops and roses. Just tell people you love them and kind of don't worry about their actions. Well, no, this is, the, this is usually where we skip to. You're responsible for your actions, and this is what you did, and this is what is going to have to happen. You need to know what you did. But it's, okay, what, how would that change if we had these four messages first that we're able to communicate? And so you know, we need to think of ourselves more of a coach, not a commander. Or need to think of ourselves um, more of like a like a conductor almost, rather than a judge of like I'm all these people sitting in front of me have these skills and how do I bring them together uh, to do something good? Or a coach comes alongside someone instead of like I'm just going to command people what to do, or a judge saying this is what you've done wrong, thinking about how can I come alongside this person, um, or how can I walk with them rather than having a like. I'm standing above them or approach, or I'm below them as like a victim. Like, okay, this person's made an image of God. I am too. How can I come alongside them and help hone their skills, identify strengths and build upon them, help them grow in weaknesses? And so instead of seeing them as the problem, coming alongside them and saying, hey, there's this problem. Can we work on it together? And that can help relieve a lot of tension. And the second thing, so check your beliefs. The second is shift your focus. Shift your focus. The question for you are safe with me is what's going on in me? What's going on in me? What baggage am I bringing into this? What expectations, what assumptions, what attitudes? And the question for your love no matter what is what's going on in them? So it's what's going on in me? Okay, I'm coming in not having all this stuff getting me stressed out. I can be safe and calm and then, okay, if I'm going to love them no matter what, what's going on in them? What's it like to be them in this moment, to empathize with them? But then the question for your called and capable is, what do I see in them? So it's what's going on in me, uh, what's going on in them, and then what do I see in them? And this is looking for the good, even in the midst of uh, the bad. And it's reframing behavior by asking, you know, what would these skills, talents, and strengths uh, behind this behavior, how would that bless others if it was used rightly? And it's kind of like a treasure hunt. It's like, I'm looking for the treasure buried beneath that behavior. It's like, what are you using to do that that thing so that you can affirm good desires and the good strengths and skills and talents used to them? And this helps us to not see people just as the problem or the pain. It cr- puts us in a position where we're affirming the other person even when they're you're like we tend to say, there's nothing to affirm here. And uh, people have said, I've actually heard different ratios, but I've heard, the one ratio I've heard is that uh, criticism weighs 10 times more than affirmation. And so you think in a situation like, okay, how many times have I criticized this person versus how many times I've affirmed them? And you have to affirm someone 10 times for it to weigh the same as one criticism. It's kind of like thinking of a bank account. Every time you criticize, you're making a withdrawal on how connected and built up they feel. And have you put in enough deposits of affirmation that there's a a safety and a trust there that you can make a withdrawal to uh, give helpful feedback or criticism? And we need to do this with our own issues, shifting the focus, because often our greatest sin struggles, actually behind them is our greatest strength. And similarly, our greatest strengths can become the ways that we have we keep uh, fighting sin. in. So, um, for example, myself, two of my character faults are uh, perfectionism and anger, and they go hand in hand with each other. And I want things and people to be perfect, and if they aren't, I get angry. You know, so if I'm in a healthy unhealthy state, I'm getting angry with imperfections, and this includes anger with myself. Man, I didn't do that right, and that I'm kind of mad at myself. How could I mess that up? How could I miss that? I did that again, you know? And one way to look at this is that I need to get rid of these two faults. I need to stop being so perfectionistic. I need to stop being so angry. That's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is, okay, if I'm made in the image of and likeness of God, do these show characteristics of God? Are these a way of reflecting what God is like? And if you think about it, uh, God is the ultimate perfecter. He's the ultimate improver. He's the ultimate reformer. He's the ultimate transformer. And So my desire, when I see this is something that needs an area of growth or needs to improve or transform, well, that's something God does. He doesn't stop until we're made fully in the image of Christ. And so that can be a good character trait. And the same thing with uh, anger. I mean, God gets angry. Jesus got angry. But the question is, am I being angry about the right things? Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. And so anger is not a sin, but what, how does that anger get directed and what, is, uh, what am I angry about Is are key questions. And so for us, uh, we can shift our focus to this other place of saying, okay, what has God, this is a sin struggle of mine, I keep going into it. And the probably reason I'm going into it is because it's a strength of mine that is getting used in the wrong way. It's a gift God has given me, a capability he's given me, that's going the wrong way. And if you think of Philippians 4.8, I'll just read it few you quickly, we can think about this um, with ourselves and other people. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the way my Bible has this broken up is... He says this in a section where he's talking to these two ladies in the Philippian church, Udiah and Syntyche, I think. Um, They're having a conflict. And so one of his applications is for, you know how you can clear up kind of this big conflict you're having with with them and any conflict? Why don't you focus on love what's lovely, what's commendable, what's honorable, and see people uh, in that way. And just as we... Think about us as a church and what this looks like for us to minister to people who are far from Jesus as a church and as individuals, is Jesus connected with a lot of people who are living lives of bad behavior. And he was known as a friend of sinners, whether it's you know uh, the sinful woman who washed his feet with her hair, Levi the tax collector, the woman at the well who had multiple husbands and the person she was living with isn't her husband either. And uh, a prostitute And so Jesus is connecting with these people And we too can connect with people Who are behaving in ways That are totally dishonoring to God And let me just share uh, That other story that I told you That uh, the founder Of Connected Families One of the founders uh, Tells And this will basically be how we'll close So he says this When I, Jim was working with at-risk teens. I had an encounter that I'll never forget. Jared was covered with violent tattoos, had tattered dark clothes, a defiant countenance, and he wore multiple piercings in his ears, nose, eyebrows, and lips, which suggested a hard life. Jared was in our program for skipping school, along with other poor choices. His veneer seemed to say, back off, but I dared to ask, how do you get away with skipping school? He grinned a little and was proud when he explained how he and his friends would distract the door monitor for each other and then take turns about who gets to skip school that day. Jim responded, So you're a good planner, you treat your friends fairly, and you're all willing to sacrifice for each other. Add to that list your creativity and a good memory when lying, I'd say you're a pretty talented guy. Imagine what might happen if you used some of those talents in ways that were more helpful to you and others and less trouble. He says my words were heartfelt, so were Jared's, as evidenced by the glint of a tear and soft tone when he said, "No one has ever said anything like that to me before." And he says Okay, he's going to talk about kids here, but just replace kids with people, or you know, parents with our or my. So when kids or people like Jared get in trouble, they usually tap into their strengths and talents to accomplish what's important to them. If If our primary goal is to straighten them out or fix the problems through punishment, these people often grow discouraged, believing they're troublemakers, not talented people. When people believe the message you're called and capable, they hold on to the hope that they can use their gifts in positive ways to impact the world around them. As as I think about many people in Woodstock or this county or in the world, people who you're like, Wow, that person is obviously living in a way that God is not commanded or dishonoring to God. You know, let's just ask ourselves, uh, do you think you could connect with a terrorist? Do you think you could connect with an abortion activist? Do you think you could connect with a drag queen? Could you connect with a serial killer? And these are people who are far from God and need God's love. And yet we might say they're just too far gone. But would it be possible for us to connect and say, I see the desire that you're pursuing and even if there was like a you know, transgender drag queen, it's like, wow, it takes a lot of courage to do what you do. You've put a lot of effort into trying to you know, help yourself. Like you can, we can affirm those sorts of things, even if it's misdirected. And I remember Brian and I, a couple of years ago, we had these interactions with a couple of the Mormon missionaries who were in town. And I remember, I, I think I told them to their face, at least we talked about it, but I think I told them, like, Because these kids, I mean, they were kids, they are like 19, I mean, they're adults, but (laughs) they felt very young. They saved up all this money, like thousands and thousands of dollars through their childhood, um, putting that money away so that after they were out of high school, they could serve as a missionary for one or two years in some place where somebody told them to go. And then they walk around all day knocking on people's doors. And it was just amazing to me. Like, look at the commitment of these guys. Like, they gave up buying other stuff saved up their money throughout being in their uh, parents' home, and they're willing to knock on people's doors. And even though I totally disagree with their faith, I think they're leading people astray, still we can see, wow, there's something you're doing here that
1: you know, I honestly
0: could be better at. Of like, man, you're giving up so much, and so much sacrifice. And so I feel like situations like that, we're going to get in those all the time, where it's like, here's this person all tattooed up. I don't know what I think about them. Not that The tattoos are wrong, but we might be like, uh, like this Jared that was described, dark clothes and piercings and tattoos, and you would like, ooh, you know, he's kind of giving off a vibe of just leave me alone or whatever situation. But if we're like Jesus, we're friends of sinners, able to connect with them and see the image of God in them, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, but they're using the wrong ways and can be redeemed through Christ. Let's pray. God, would you help us to be the first people who hear and believe this message that we're called and capable. You've made us in your image, which means we're able to do what you call us to do. So Lord, would you also give us eyes to see other people through this lens as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.